my mother grew up there, you know, my mother, my father, my grandmother, both grandmothers. I've been out there all my life. From the time I was born in 1964, all the way up until probably like 93, 94. We used to hang out on the blocks because we had a place called the blocks. Everybody lived in one circle then. And the blocks were a bunch of blocks built. And it was like a playground for the kids. And they had blocks where we, everybody at night, when it's nice and hot out or something, that's where we always used to go and sit down and smoke cigarettes and drink. And, you know, everybody sit around because it's hot. And we used to hang out. I was messing around with this dude that he was from New York. And he wasn't living with me, but he used to come over, you know, hang out with me. And we used to go out and stuff. You know, he used to come by, visit. Never spent the night, though. Never. He used to just be over there, you know, and leave maybe about 1 o'clock in the morning or something. You know, walk home down to the other end. But I, I never knew that he was a fugitive. So, being that he used to hang around by my house and stuff, then I went through that eviction process. They arrested him. And then the next couple of, about a week later, they sent me a letter. Because they was like, oh, we seen him coming out to your house. You know, so they figure... He was coming out of my house. He was selling drugs and all that stuff, which he wasn't doing it in my house because I didn't know if he actually was doing it or not because he never did things around me. I went to court, and they really didn't have nothing on me, but just that, that he was my boyfriend and all that stuff. So then I had a choice. Either they evict me because of that or I will move. And I moved, went into a shelter. And then I still had sort of like a hard time getting an apartment. Because when I first tried to get an apartment, I went to Mission Park. I applied for them, and then they had accepted me. But in between them accepting it, they had to go through the quarry and all that. Then they called the people. At the, Harbor Point. At Harbor Point. And they claimed that I was, I got evicted for drugs, which I didn't. And I tried to prove it to them, but then they didn't accept me then. So then I went to, then I went into the shelter, you know, because that's how it is out there. It's like you live out there, you get stuck. See what types of resources we have in Columbia Point. None. We have none. And that's what we're asking for. 5,000 people with nothing to take care of them, you know, nothing. From Jacobin Magazine, this is People's History. People from the inside experience love tenacity, willpower. You're listening to our first six-episode season, The Point. The Point was not valued like it is today in terms of it being a piece of property. 
They're like, we want this property. We want people gone. Yeah. This is real intimidation. This is honest to goodness. You know, this is life or death here. The police invaded Columbia Point. The men, they, they picked up the arm. I'm Alejandro Ramirez with my co-producers Connor Gillies and Rihanna Fernandez-Nunez. And this is episode six, our season finale. False Hope. Really to follow where you are I'm wishing on a dream to follow what it means and I wish in all the rainbows that I see and I wish in all the people who From 1984 to 1987, the developer Corcoran Mullins Jennison entered the last leg of their campaign to flip Columbia Point into a private, gated community renamed Harbor Point. A 1,500-unit public housing project was converted into a 1,300-unit mixed-income development. A little more than 400 apartments were reserved for those with low incomes. However, this did not necessarily mean current occupants. CMJ displaced many of those tenants out during a process called the Blitz. I've been here for 27 years. I've been here in this project for 27, 27 years. And they're going to pull that shit on me. They're going to pull that shit on me. What are they trying to do? Just get everybody out? So they they want to put us up to let the white people live in You think that's it? That I know what that is. to keep running rent up and up and up and up. In 1987, the final year of Columbia Point before the last phase of demolition, documentary producers Linda Swartz and Carol Anthony recorded interviews with residents about the change at hand. Tenants described rents going up and training programs to teach tenants how to behave alongside middle-class neighbors. Now you take me, but I've been begging them, begging them. I said, there's nobody but here but me and my grandson. Give me a smaller apartment. Down the end, down the end, Give down me the a end. smaller apartment. I said, all I need is two bedrooms. I got five bedrooms here. They charge you by the, they charge you by the bedroom. So why aren't they giving you a smaller apartment? He told me they didn't have any. Didn't have any. Now what the hell do I need with five bedrooms, just me and my five-year-old grandson? What do I need with five bedrooms? I told him to give me a small apartment. He claimed don't. He said, when I went on that and asked him, he said, you made my day. You made, you made my day. You made my day. When I went over that and asked him, I said, could I have a small apartment? I'll tell you what's going to happen. Not what I think. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. If people don't get together and get involved in politics, they might as well forget this place. Period. It will be Harbor Point. It will be for the rich. Period. The man told us 
Because it's the heat of us. And a meeting. We have we have like building building meetings. He told us this day he wasn't here to you know, a manager or nothing like that. He said he was here to train us. To let us know that people don't be living next door to us, paying a thousand dollars, thousand dollars a month. Need that. A thousand dollars a month. He was just well, train saying, us. You don't train us. That's what he said. He said he wasn't here as a manager. You don't have to train me with nobody. Because I live, I'm in the ghetto. You're going to live a thousand, spend a thousand dollars. I'm living in the ghetto. CMJ's goal was to make the new Harbor Point appealing to white and affluent renters to justify the high rents they wanted to charge. This meant using a new security force to keep black and Latino residents off the street and installing a regime of increased surveillance and intimidation. Throughout the conversion, and afterwards during the 90s, hundreds of residents were pushed or forced out of their homes. CMJ estimates 20% of the remaining tenants at the point were evicted. We've asked a lot of people about this number, and some said it sounded low. In the early 2000s, the Bay State Banner reported that over half of the 400 original Columbia Point residents had left Harbor Point or were evicted. What we do know is that, according to Ruby Williams, a current tenant at Harbor Point, there are only a few black people left today. And like now, it's on a handful of us left out here. I don't know if it's 50 blacks out here now. Honest to God, I don't know if it's 50, because when all you see is different people now. Ruby Williams was living in the South with her sister. In the 60s, they decided to move. She said, Ruby, you sure you want to do this? I said, yes, ma'am. I said, I want to go and be with my sister and with you. And she took me and my five kids. That's how I ended up in Boston. I've been here ever since. This is home. North Carolina was where I was born, but this is home. I came up here, I was 21 years old. In the beginning, when I first came out here, I thought I was, I really was happy because I had six kids. My baby was six months old, one was just walking good. I had two babies in Pampas when I came out here. So I, I, I thought I hit a jackpot, really, because they had the, the stores and things out here when I came. They had the clinic, they had the welfare office, and the church across the street, and the bank, and the school. So I was fine with it when I came out here. And it was everything was in walking distance, you know? Ruby is about 70 years old. We met her one day when we were walking around Harbor Point, knocking on doors. I should write a book, you know? I'd read it. Oh, it's a lot. It's a lot to be told. She buzzes us into her building, one of the big complexes along a main road. In her one-bedroom apartment, she has hundreds of family pictures on the wall. So that's my baby boy up top looking like a preacher, whatever. So most of this is just a bunch of families and... Just family, mostly. Family all over. I say I don't see them like I want, but at least I can. I have my picture, I have my memories. She described a common story we heard about how the BHA completely neglected the project in the 70s. Boston Housing did not come out to try to see about that sewage problem in my basement. I called them about the backing up in the basement. My basement was, it was really, you could smell the odor. It was bad staying there but they ain't had nowhere to go. We was like forgotten peoples, really. That's, that's the word to say at, the, at that time because Boston Housing had another plan. As she sees it, the plan was to hand the housing project over to a private developer 
and to try and get rid of as many people of color as possible. When they decided to do the place over, they, a lot of people that was out here got put out or either they just left. They didn't want to be under the new people that have it now because there was a lot of rules and regulations, you know. I think some people, they made an offer. If they moved, they give them such amount of money. That's, and this is what I heard because they didn't offer me none, you know, so. We corroborated this with another resident, Monestine Williams. She said a lot of people were given cash to move. But because a lot of residents had no intentions of moving or had nowhere else to go, the developer tried other tactics. What they said is, if you own rent, you couldn't move into the new Harbor Point. So that was one way of getting rid of people moving into Harbor Point. They said, okay, you might have never paid rent. You might have only owed them two or three months. But if you owed rent, you could not come into the new Harbor Point. Because they took all the tr- troubled people and put them in the same area and the same couple of buildings. And so they just slowly started evicting the people out of those buildings. They didn't put them back into the townhouses or anything else. That was their way of weeding them out and getting rid of families. With the remaining 350 residents consolidated into a few buildings, CMJ identified so-called bad apples. They started strictly enforcing new rules and targeting drug dealers. CMJ built a new road system and blocks of modern townhouses. These would be reserved for tenants with clean records. Then, as President Reagan's war on crime ramped up, housing managers, both public and private, went into overdrive as far as policing. About 90% of the arrests they make are drug-related. 99% of those arrests result in convictions. Here's a typical scene from 1989. A local TV news team followed the Boston Public Housing Police Force in action. In the video, on YouTube, you see cops wearing aviator sunglasses patrolling the project, harassing young men riding bikes. They interrogate someone and then frisk another young man. Y'all taking our knives too? We need those for protection. Then you see police back at the headquarters, planning to raid an apartment where they believe someone deals drugs. It's going to be uh, myself, it's going to be Summit it's going to be O'Loughlin, it's going to be Lindsay, and it's going to be JJ and uh, Bryce. We're going to make a forced entry through the back door. There, there might be a possibility of the start-off shopping in there, okay? Hopefully we'll be able to get in and just uh, get in there quick and whack the door, and we'll be all set. Cover the front, cover the front. We're going in, cover the front. They break down the door to the whole apartment complex with the battering ram. The video cuts to inside the apartment. Four young people, two men and two women, are in handcuffs. JJ, what have you found so far? What have you found so far? One of the cops says. Not much. Not much. Not much, but enough. Enough? Not much, but enough. He's holding up one sandwich bag with maybe half a gram of cocaine in it. The two men got charged with trafficking and distribution, and the two women got charged for conspiracy. I wonder why they just don't toss a lot of those people right out of the projects. I guess it's not quite as simple as that. Truth is, while cops were sending more people than ever to jail, the housing authority did evict a lot of people. In 1988, just the year before, 
a record 153 families were evicted across Boston projects for alleged criminal activity. Families got pushed out to other neighborhoods or out of Boston entirely. At Columbia Point, CMJ scrutinized the remaining tenants' rental histories. Many weren't paying rent and legally didn't have to because conditions were so bad. Repayment plans were set up and residents were required to start paying or risk being evicted. For residents who made it into the new Harper Point, the threat of eviction was still close overhead. New management meant strict enforcement of rules and restrictions, some existing, some new. Rules like no pets, no sitting on stoops, no congregating in public spaces, no playing music, or no hanging out laundry to dry. Things that used to be a regular part of living in the point could now get you and your family kicked out of your home. Eviction numbers have been hard to capture, in part because many tenants avoided going to court. When they got an eviction notice, they simply moved out to avoid jeopardizing their Section 8 benefits. One of CMJ's main tactics was to target the children of Puerto Rican and Black tenants, claiming kids were causing problems at the property. They posed parents with the choice, take your kids off the lease or be evicted. Some mothers avoided the question entirely by moving out, if they could afford to. Others made the difficult choice of taking their kids off the lease. Then the security force placed trespass orders on the kids, banning them from Harbor Point altogether. CMJ had a blacklist of hundreds of names. If those people were seen at home or anywhere in Harbor Point, CMJ would target their mothers and try to evict them. Ruby Williams recounts her experience as a mother in Harbor Point. And I almost got kicked out a couple of times myself behind my kids, okay? But I was a working mother with six kids, and they want to hold you responsible for what happened in your home while you're not even there. They gave me the eviction, and I went to court and I won that through with the judge understanding. So I did what he said. He said, Ms. Williams, I can t- you can take them off the lease, or you, he gave me a choice, take them off the lease, and I could stay here. So that's what I did. I, I didn't want to do it. I felt bad. I was crying, but I had to have somewhere to stay. Another woman, Esther Nieves, lived at Columbia Point for 19 years. In 1988, she, her daughter, and two young grandchildren were evicted because her son came to visit, in violation of the no trespass order. He had been arrested on a drug charge, but the case had been dropped. Nonetheless, Esther and her family were put out and became homeless. Lora Gomez, a mother of four, was evicted and banned from Harbor Point. The reason? An old shoplifting charge. A project administrator claimed the reason to be drug-related. She too became homeless, while her kids and grandmother continued to reside in Harbor Point. Dan Murray, vice president of CMJ, was blunt about why they evicted another woman. He said the woman had a drinking and drug problem and would, quote, bring in the friends, the boyfriends, the buddies. Usually they're not a great class of individuals that enhances the property. Henry Funches, you know, a lot of people know me as Trey. I was born and raised in Columbia Point, 1978, I was born out there. I grew up 
around the time that Columbia Point was transitioning to Harbor Point. Growing up, going to school, I went to the Tynan, the Tynan Elementary. We were some of the children who were part of like the busing. Like I'm sure other people was explaining to you about the busing, how they was throwing rocks and eggplants and stuff at our buses and stuff on our way to school. As far as Columbia Point, like I was there for like the gentrification when they changed it over. I seen the changes, how it went from being the projects, you know, going from being a kid in the projects and uh actually having to have a roach taken out my ear, like evacuated out my ear because it was roaches and rats and going from that to uh, you know, they kinda cleaned it up. I was one of the kids who was selling drugs and who was traveling up and down these highways and getting locked up in different states and things of that sort, doing prison time in another state, coming back home to probation and next to nothing, nowhere to stay. I was I was homeless in the city. I understand what it is to uh, not have nowhere to go. Henry Funches grew up in Columbia Point, but these days says he has no plans or reason to go back. Henry recently graduated from the School of the Museum of Fine Arts and as a freelancer, paints murals for local businesses and restaurants. Yeah, this is some of my work, some of the different stuff. This is this is a painting I did inside of El Centro. These are like big walls, large walls. I did a Frida Kahlo. Henry shows us a self-portrait, him standing in front of an abandoned Columbia Point, with his hands covering his face. There are words along the bottom. Society made me, now they hate me. And, uh... You know, that was just a representation of, you know, society makes us this way. And then they, in turn, hate us, just like how they indicted all my friends. You know, they push you into these situations, and then they take you and lock you up and say, you know, throw away the key. Henry gets upset when he thinks back to the trespass orders and the conversion process in general. In one phone call, he told us bluntly, fuck CMJ. They had curfews on us. At one point, it was a curfew. You couldn't be outside after a certain time. And if you was outside, they would send letters to your mother, you know. And eventually, they was using that to build up portfolios on people's mothers for eviction. And they were using those things as tactics to evict people out of the, you know, out of the, out of the project. And when they cleaned it up, they gave a lot of people trespassing. When I got older, I ended up getting a trespassing. But they was doing that to a whole lot of people. It was a lot of stuff going out there that, uh, you know, that's not spoken of as far as like CMJ evicting people, using their kids to make mothers kind of like push their kids out, you know, taking them off the lease and stuff like that. They was doing that kind of stuff. Um, they was using that trespassing as a tool to lock people up at one point. People were going to jail behind it. You know, like when they arrested me and put a trespassing on me, right, I'm going to give you my story of what happened. I was walking through the point. The security guard came up to me and was like, is your name Henry Funches? And I was like, no, why? He was like, oh, you have a warrant. But the warrant was a civil warrant. Civil as in the driving without a license warrant. So they were trying to arrest me on the property for driving without a license. And I was walking. Because if they give you a trespassing and they put you on the undesirable list, then there's no way you can go back to where you was from. And you have to go to other places, because you really didn't have no choice. The Boston Police Department deputized the private security force at Harbor Point. The guards acted with full authority over the property. Tennis reported how teens were searched, maced, and even beaten by security. 
Boston police gave the Harbor Point Security Force resources and even fought to allow them to carry guns and make arrests. Ruby Williams's son was caught up with some guys dealing drugs, so the police, without warning, broke into her apartment. I had company. We had sat there and had dinner and all that stuff. They waited till my company left, waited till the lights went out. They was watching the house, and and um, and they 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 um came they came in the the, the security the, the Boston housing guys let them in, and they come around my bed one the first one. I see this gun pointed. First time in my life I ever saw a real gun. I was in the bed with my friend, and they said, don't move, get up. And I'm saying, what? And we got up, and he, they saying, saying, they're here about four or five of them with their guns out, right? Because they're looking for one of my sons that done got, got involved with these people. And then one of my sons spoke up for him. They said, oh, you, you, the police told him, say, you, you got something to say? They was in my house, you know, and everything. Uh, you know how they come in and look through everything stuff. And my son said, don't do that. Don't be cussing in front of my mother and this and that. They arrested him, too. He got nine months for telling them what they shouldn't do. And I ain't had seen no search warrant or nothing. They didn't show me no search warrant. Me and my family was in the bed. They, and next thing I know, a gun barrel pointing at me in my bed, and that's on my dead mother. I'm telling you the truth. During the Clinton era, Harbor Point became the model for privatizing public housing, a public-private partnership that would be replicated across the country. But as the tenants at Columbia Point experienced, the new interest of private profit worsened the mistreatment of low-income residents and people of color in the development. Here is Julie Patino. This whole notion of privatization, um, it's just such a problem because anytime things are profit-driven, you get that social engineering. When I went to the Bay Area, I ran legal aid for one of the big counties there for six years, and a huge part of our bread and butter was eviction, and it was the same thing. It was even the San Francisco Housing Authority had farmed out management of a bunch of their properties to for-profit companies, and they just preyed on low-income folks. And you just had to be the shiniest of the shiny to even get in there, like perfect credit, no criminal background history whatsoever. And it's like, those aren't the folks that have housing impediments and barriers. So it's you're just cranking people into the homeless system. On a very basic level, a public-private partnership makes no sense. The public sphere exists as a, as a government entity. It exists to protect the public's welfare. Private institutions, capital, exist to make money. This is the historian Kianga Yamada-Taylor. In her latest book, Race for Profit, she explores the link between racial segregation and the real estate market. She says... By bringing a profit motive into the public housing system, policymakers accelerated gentrification. And so even if you, even if you don't have, have a critical viewpoint of capitalism, of the market, of a market economy, of the right to, to make a profit, even if you're not critical of that, the contradiction between those two is obvious public welfare and profit-making don't actually complement each other. When you weave in the particular history of the private institutions that are at the heart of the housing industry, 
in the United States and how these organizations historically have not just been complicit, but have been decisive in creating an architecture of racism, apartheid, segregation that has been to the detriment of Black people on an individual and community basis. What does it mean to be in partnership with these organizations? In 1992, Congress launched a program called HOPE-6. It was a nationwide push to privatize federally owned projects modeled on Harbor Point. In fact, Henry Cisneros, Clinton's HUD secretary, toured Harbor Point and saw it as an example of going from worst to first. Now we're engaged in a truly national effort in about 50 cities across America uh, that have spun off of the Harbor Point concept. Uh, So it may be thought of as one award-winning development, but it's really uh, the seedbed of a national strategy. Cisneros billed Hope 6 as the last gasp for public housing. If people pay attention, the plan that they use for Harbor Point, they use that same tactic in different places. You know, they go into different places and they're like, well, if it worked in Columbia Point, which was one of the worst places, that's why you have places like Chicago where they're tearing down the, the projects, redeveloping, gentrifying everything. And they're using the same tactic that they used in Harbor Point. It's not an unfamiliar tactic that we haven't seen. Secretary Cisneros is in Chicago to provide emergency funds for enforcement and prevention in gang-infested public housing. We'll put more police in public housing. In Chicago, Mayor Richard M. Daley, in collaboration with HUD and a city housing authority vice-chaired by Rahm Emanuel, used Hope 6 in a major plan to demolish 18,000 public housing apartments, including major projects like Cabrini Green and the Robert Taylor Homes. At least 8,300 families were displaced, according to the housing authority. The demolition program reflected a much larger trend of people getting priced out of Chicago. Since 1980, the black population in Chicago has declined by 350,000 people. We were absolutely overwhelmed with substandard public housing infested with gangs and guns and drugs. And Secretary Cisneros helped us to tear it down, get rid of it, and build new housing for people to live in dignity and raise their children in an environment in which anyone could be proud of. Turns out the neoliberals were even friendlier to real estate interests than the old liberals as cities became more attractive to affluent residents and an international real estate market grew, public projects stood in the way of lucrative urban development. In the eye of the market, which has always associated the poor and especially people of color with blight and crime, public housing tenants became the perfect target. It was in the interest of housing authorities to depopulate the buildings as much as possible because After a while, the HOPE-6 program and HUD only made you replace public housing units that were occupied at the time of the granting of the HOPE-6 funding. So if you had 200 units and you could could depopulate it so that only 100 people were in place at the time of the redevelopment, then it was really only those 100 units that you had to replace in one way or another. Ed Gutz is a professor of urban studies at the University of Minnesota and the author of a book about Hope Six called New Deal Ruins. He talked to us about how the Hope Six program involved many of the same tactics used at Columbia Point. 
including deliberate neglect and displacement of public housing tenants. So the typical HOPE 6 takes a a large uh, or medium-sized public housing development that is exclusively public housing and tears it down or rehabs it in in a very fundamental way, redevelops it in a fundamental way. And the new development that takes the place of the old one is a mixed income development. There will be some public housing units, but typically many fewer than existed on the site before. And those units are joined by other forms of assisted housing and then market rate housing. The research shows that these developments are frequently managed to the expectations of the market rate people, not the public housing residents. And the the residents were told that they were being included in the creation of their new community, um, that this is where uh, they would be living and uh, that they would have input into what it looked like. All the while, the data from around the country was showing that in fact, on average, only one in five of the original residents ever made it back onto site after the redevelopment was completed. They instituted these tenant screening criteria, which actually meant that many of the original families had no way of coming back in. They just couldn't meet the criteria. They didn't have the rental histories, or they may have had a criminal history, which essentially disqualified them. So families were never told to you know, look to their right and, their, and, and to their left and imagine that uh, four out of the five of them would, uh, would not be living in these, uh, in these units. They were, they were led on in the, uh, in the expectation that they were designing their new, uh, their new community. So Hope 6, the Hope 6 program, like many programs before it, is yet another phase in the privatization of providing affordable housing to low-income people. It's a way that the state can clean its hands, so to speak. Here's the historian Rhonda Williams, author of the book, The Politics of Public Housing. Yeah, with, with Hope 6, we do have wholesale displacement of, of low-income people in the name and in the guise of mixed-income communities. Uh, many people are displaced, and they're not going to find an opportunity to return to those neighborhoods where they've built community So this idea of displacement and gentrification, even if a small number can come back, which is, right, the key, right? A small number can come back, so therefore we're serving low-income people. What about that? You know, how is this benefiting the people who who held these neighborhoods down? This this language of Hope 6 and this language of mixed-income communities has hidden a lot of stuff from us, has has prevented us from really asking, I think, some of the hard questions, who was benefiting and who is not benefiting, whether they live in those communities or displaced from those communities or not. The other part of the story here is that you can't make such large-scale changes in policy without first priming the pump, so to speak, by, by making it acceptable to make big changes. And the way that happened in the late 80s and the early 90s was through what I call the discourse of disaster that surrounded public housing. And this had to do with the moral panic in American cities around crime, around uh, violence, around uh, heightened levels of, of poverty, 
and around communities of color. Throughout the late 1980s, Congress had pushed various tough-on-crime approaches to public housing. But Clinton took things to the next level. This should come as no surprise from the president responsible for the notorious 1994 crime bill, which resulted in the level of policing and incarceration we see today. Must make the streets safer. I don't care why someone is a malefactor in society. I don't care why someone is antisocial. I don't care why they become a sociopath. We have an obligation to cordon them off from the rest of society, try to help them. This is Joe Biden, one of the architects of the crime bill. And we have other treatments to try to deal with it, but they are in jail. Away from my mother, your husband, our families. In 1996, Clinton signed a law known as the one-strike policy for public housing tenants. From now on, the rule for residents who commit crime and peddle drugs should be one strike and you're out. The idea here is that if anyone in the household of a public housing resident was involved in criminal drug activity, then the entire household was subject to eviction. One strike and you're out. One offense and the entire family or the entire household is moved out. And it didn't matter whether the other members of the household even knew about the illicit activity of the offender. Uh, Oftentimes, it didn't even matter whether the offender was even a regular resident of the unit. This was the most draconian element of the uh, war on crime and the war on drugs uh, that you can imagine. These were people losing their housing rights, even if they themselves had done nothing wrong. All of these policies, including Hope 6, law and order, welfare reform, and increased austerity, it all spoke to the Democrats' new strategy of addressing poverty and social issues. As the writer Michelle Alexander pointed out in the book The New Jim Crow, during Bill Clinton's tenure as president, the U.S. government slashed funding for public housing by $17 billion, a reduction of 61%. At the same time, they boosted funding for corrections by $19 billion, an increase of 171%. In effect, the U.S. government made prisons, quote, the nation's main housing program for the urban poor. Now that we're getting somewhere, you know we got to give back. For the youth is the future, no doubt that's right and exact. Squeeze the juice out of all the suckers with power and pour some back out. So as to water the flowers, this world is ours. That's why the demons are leery, it's our inheritance. This is my Robin Hood theory. Robin Hood theory. Back at Columbia Point, where these tough-on-crime policies were in full effect, tenants were doing what they could to get organized and resist evictions. You know, we were working with tenant associations all over the city at that period, and we got involved in working with the tenant association at Harbor Point. So our efforts were to defend them against eviction and also to address some of the management policies that were prejudicial towards the higher-income younger white tenants. Steve Meacham is a longtime housing organizer at City Life, a housing nonprofit which he now helps run. 
In the early 2000s, he was working with tenants at Columbia Point on police harassment issues. This is my perception and what I think were the youth of color's perception. They definitely felt that both security and management didn't want them there. This was exhibited by the fact, for instance, that, you know, there were tennis courts but no basketball courts, that, you know, their perception was that white youth could congregate on the grass, but black youth couldn't. I was one of the children that helped pick what the buildings would look like. Like at first they was telling us, oh, we're going to put a basketball court in the middle of the, of the project and all that kind of stuff, but instead they put a tennis court. So, you know, a lot of things that they said they were going to do, they did different, which we knew that it was uh, going to be marketed to upscale. You know, eventually it became upscale. Now, Harbor Point, three-bedroom is like $3,600 or something like that. The writing about it will say you've got to really make sure that your market rent people feel good, that they're there. So that means that there's all kinds of prohibitions against doing things which are kind of natural, that are, that are just a difference between working-class culture and, and uh, upper-middle-class cultures, such as hanging on your stoop during the day or, and, and chatting with people. A lot of youth of color were faced with trespass orders, and they would get into the system that way. You'd get a trespass order against you, and it wasn't clear. what They had hundreds of trespass orders, and you wouldn't even know why, and then you'd violate it, and they'd have you arrested, and then you're in the system. I used to say it was like a plantation. If you didn't do what the master say, you were out. You had to do what the master say. You know, they took the benches. First, they told the people they couldn't sit there. So they told them, if you sit there, we can evict you because you shouldn't be out in front because people have to come through the gate and see these people sitting out there, hanging out at the, the benches. They wasn't doing nothing but sitting out there. In the summertime, it was always so nice. That in the summertime, you see all these kids, I don't care, they black, white, Puerto Rican, you see them everywhere, all through the development. Now, huh, you're lucky if you see a handful of kids, but you don't really see a lot of black kids anymore. You don't see that. After years of harassment, tenants at Harbor Point formed a group called Lift Every Voice, with residents like Monacine Williams at the helm. This group worked with City Life, the housing justice organization, and attorney, Julie Patino. They organized rallies, marches, and Know Your Rights workshops. So I happened to be going by one day, and I see these um, uh, city lights outside um, talking about if you've been harassed and all this other stuff. We we started, Julie Patino started having um, classes because I was like, well, these kids don't know their rights. People would come to me late at night, knocking at my door, trying to get help. Can you help me? But I don't want CMJ to know. And I'm like, well, how can I help you if you don't want CMJ to know? And they were told, you know, you don't want to mess with them. You don't want to mess with them. They're nothing but trouble. They're nothing but trouble. And all we were doing was trying to get people to keep their homes. I remember my mom being very uh, vocal about a lot of it. Like, I This is Williams's daughter. I mean, she was an activist, so I remember I was I was ten maybe when I remember all of that. So like the like different like I don't know if you would want to call them protests, but just like the rallies and stuff like that. I do remember like even having friends that would be getting evicted. Um, so I I remember you know I had a huge group of friends, and as time went on, my group of friends went like from about ten fifteen to of us, and just over time it. It just kept decreasing the amount of kids, and that's because their families are being evicted. 
CMJ was well connected to some of the politicians. So they wouldn't, they didn't want to hear about all the harassment and stuff that was going on out there. We kept saying there's too many evictions and harassments and stuff. But the politicians that were in our area wouldn't listen to us. Then we started having um, hearings at the school and they listened to what other people were complaining about. In 2003, the tenants tried to get attention on police issues at Harbor Point by holding a special public hearing with the city councilor Chuck Turner presiding. When the issue was presented to me in terms of a pattern of police harassment of the youth, I thought it was very important to assure uh, the residents that all, that all are welcome here. Modestine spoke at the hearing. About two years ago, um, I started getting harassed and my children started getting harassed. Um, so we began to have this W voice. Instead of me looking behind my back to see if my neighbors were going to bother me, I started looking to see whether security was following me. Um, I had to go outside of Harbor Point and start asking for assistance to see what I could do. Several other tenants gave their testimony. I said I have a lifetime trespass. You know, if that ain't right, you know, I, mean, I got a big family on here. You know, you know. I got arrested yesterday for coming out here to see my family. I'm a member of the church out there, but I can't attend now because of the trespass paper. I've never been brought into court about any trespass off of this particular property. You know, going back to how it just mess up the household, it just put so much tension on, on families. You know, you have mothers yelling at the children, don't do that, don't do this. You know, we're going to be evicted for this. Don't step on the glass. I've heard parents say, don't step on the glass. You know, to a two-year-old, and feel flat. It hurts. The year 2000, I'm seeing this, and everybody else is seeing this across this country, are going through these situations with these landlords. And you know what? Splitting families. Come on now. That's wrong. A CMJ lawyer stood up to provide the developer's response. This is not public housing. This is private property. And management has developed very specific instances in which they find the behavior far outweighs the risk to the other residents, which that that person not be invited onto the property so that the other residents can enjoy their home and live there safely without risk of a potential person who has in the past caused harm. This is private property, the CMJ lawyer says, not public housing. Attorney Julie Patino was there as well. And I'll say that one of my clearest memories in my whole practice of law was that CMJ lawyer, I can still see her in my mind's eye, getting up and talking, and every, every one of her fingers had a huge diamond ring on it. I've never seen anything like it. And I remember thinking to myself, I wonder how many families you evicted for each one of those diamonds. At the end of the hearing, the city councilors promised to continue the discussion in another session. So I really appreciate uh, the residents who testified, and, uh, and I'm looking forward to the, uh, the 
next hearing. But a second hearing never came to pass. As usual, the city did little to act on the testimonies. And in 2008, Chuck Turner was actually framed by the FBI, caught accepting a small bribe and forced out of office. The HOPE 6 program spread across Boston in the 90s and early 2000s. Mission Maine was redeveloped, Orchard Park became Orchard Gardens, and Maverick Gardens became Maverick Landing. At each location, the level of displacement varied, but the common denominator was fewer public housing apartments and new, stricter private management. Here's Steve Meacham again. We did an eviction blockade a few years ago in um, Maverick Landing you know, which is the old Maverick of public housing now owned by uh, Trinity. You know, punitive management to keep the uh, the poor folks in line, in my opinion. And, you know, you're looking for reasons that people violate, you know, these stringent leases that really are not necessary for good good functioning management, like the people sitting on their stoop or, you know, children riding their bicycles in the wrong places and all that kind of stuff, you know. From 2012 to 2017, City Life worked on 66 building clearout cases in East Boston. These are instances where corporate landlords buy up large buildings and evict everyone in the process of flipping the property. The scale of mass evictions in Eastie is hard to measure because 80% of evictions don't go to court. Today, the average rent is nearly $2,000. Half of all tenants in East Boston are cost burdened by rent meaning they pay over 30% of their income on housing and may struggle to pay for food, clothing, transport, and health care. East Boston, like Columbia Point, has a lot of prime real estate on the water and now stands on the leading edge of gentrification. Tenants in Boston face an extremely difficult situation today. As rent skyrockets, the amount of affordable housing dwindles. Meanwhile, homelessness has been increasing over the last decade. According to the National Alliance to End Homelessness, over 6,000 people are homeless in Boston on any given night. It's one of the highest rates in the country. The trend lines are getting worse, in part because the harsh policies that were enacted under Clinton continued across the Bush and Obama years. A system of criminalizing people and pushing their families out of the public housing system. While the government continued to turn away from social welfare instead prioritizing imprisonment and eviction, they fed a cycle of poverty, violence, and homelessness. Hope 6 was joined by other legislative tools for authorities to get rid of public housing, or at least partially privatize it or switch tenants over to vouchers. Now there's a new Hope-style program called Rental Assistance Demonstration, or RAD, which is currently being used to overhaul public housing in Cambridge. There were new policing tools as well. 
During the so-called War on Terror, police began using anti-terrorist tactics and nighttime raids against alleged gang members. Since 2010, there has been an uptick in these sorts of highly publicized mass arrests, where police use the gang designation to send large numbers of mostly poor young men away to prison on trumped-up sentences. As the historian Alex Vitale describes, even if there's no evidence someone's involved in a violent crime, under the police's broad definition of gang membership, they become guilty by association. On top of that, district attorneys often pressure people to testify against each other, eroding solidarity and creating a culture of fear and paranoia. Now, we allege the Columbia Point dogs are responsible for decades of violence in Boston, including... In 2015, over 500 federal, state, and local cops coordinated a nighttime sweep, arresting 41 members of the Columbia Point dogs. It is alleged that the Columbia Point dog members are frequently and heavily armed. The dogs were a street gang that grew out of the impoverished Columbia Point in the late 80s and 90s. But the Blitz scattered the crew displacing them mostly to Lower Roxbury and Mattapan. When we talk about the raid with former tenant Henry Funches, who knows a few of the dog's members, he takes the long view, seeing how the gang raid was simply one more crackdown in a long history of incarceration and housing policies targeting the people of Columbia Point. He says it was never really about reducing crime. It was a crackdown, but it, to me it seemed like a political play. You know, it looks good, but it doesn't hold no merit because a lot of the people that were locked up are right back on the streets. It's a slavery tactic. You know, when you, when, you, when you take a person off the streets, right, and you go from the range of $9 an hour to, say, $50 an hour as a master carpenter, correct? When you go to prison, this same person, if they have a scale or they're teaching them a scale in prison, they're only making 11 cents an hour, which is basically slavery. Because you're paying a person pennies on a dollar for work that you know would cost way more in society. Looking back on the history of Columbia Point, we can clearly see what happened and how the conditions that gave rise to the dogs in the first place came about. We can see how the city stopped public services, even ambulance services, in the 70s. After a police raid in 1974, Kevin White began mothballing buildings, letting empty apartments stay empty. Joe Corcoran started meeting with the members of the Tenant Task Force in 76. Then, in 77, Kevin White's BRA introduced a plan formally outlining urban renewal, or redevelopment, of the point. Corcoran's development company, CMJ, won the contract to redevelop in the 1980s. Michael Dukakis, governor of Massachusetts, helped deliver millions in support of the public-private housing model he had helped design. Dukakis later spoke of being inspired by Margaret Thatcher, the neoconservative who eroded the UK's council housing program. As the researcher Marie Kennedy, whose archival interviews you've heard throughout this series, explained to us, if all the money that went into the redevelopment plan went instead directly to the tenants, each family would receive over $300,000. Instead, the government engineered a massive upward transfer of wealth, moving housing subsidies away from the tenants and into the pockets of developers. The more skeptical tenants at Columbia Point were steamrolled, overpowered by the developer and the tenant council members who supported him. 
there's no way of telling the Columbia Point story without this tragic end. Columbia Point was gentrified, most of its tenants forced out through years of neglect or by brute force. And the U.S. government replicated this on a massive scale across the United States. The effect has been nothing short of ethnic cleansing. According to Ed Gutz, Hope Six redevelopments have displaced a quarter million people, 80% of them African American. Today, like in a lot of places transformed by Hope Six, you can tour the peninsula and not have any idea Columbia Point existed. You see the JFK Library and the State Archives and the UMass campus, but it's like the city wants to forget Columbia Point, to sweep it into the dustbin. That's one reason why we set out to make this podcast in the first place, to resist that erasure, to surface the struggles and the light that Columbia Point tenants showed to the city. In other words, throughout all of it, throughout the harassment and the poverty and the violence, after facing the full force of the Boston Police Department and Southie mobs and eviction and incarceration, tenants resisted and struggled for a better life. Columbia Point is gone, physically, but we remember the long fight of its people. We remember Sandy Young and Pat McCluskey and the closing of the dump. We remember the woman of Ma, brave freedom fighters like Dorothy Haskins, Maud Hurd, and Miriam Manning. We remember Grove Hall, when welfare mothers stood ground against the tactical police force, and the Roxbury people rose up in a rebellion. We remember the perseverance and the occasional rent strike to try and keep the lights on and repairs going, despite the extreme austerity and police brutality. We remember the Black Panthers like Angie Irving and Linda Wade, who connected the oppression happening at Columbia Point with imperialism in Vietnam. We remember Betty Ann Jones and the Mau Mau, who defended Columbia Point with guns when white racists invaded the point. We remember Big Betty Washington, whose wade-in helped desegregate Carson Beach. And we remember the hundreds of other tenants who joined in those struggles. No one knows the legacy of Columbia Point better than the people who live there. So, on Labor Day 2018, Connor, Kainat Khan, and I went out to Carson Beach. A former tenant of Columbia Point, Reginald Lucas, invited us there for a cookout. Most of the people don't live at the Point anymore. They drive in from elsewhere in the city, or from other, poorer towns like Lynn, Brockton, Fall River, and New Bedford. Here's what they remember. Mike check one, Mike check two. <laughs> now, my name is uh, Kevin Ross. Um, I lived in Columbia Point. Man, I tell you, I lived in Columbia Point from 1967. Matter of fact, I was the first Columbia Point kid from the Columbia Point Health Clinic. So I'm in the history books, baby. No. Um, and, I, and I moved out of the Point. Uh, I moved out of the Point in 1982. I know Columbia Point was the best place I've ever been to. And I've been to a bunch of countries, so I'm glad I was raised in Columbia Point. Went around the world two times playing basketball. But it started from here. Riots and, and uh, busing. Um, went to the Tynan Middle School in fourth grade, fighting for my life every day. Um, but I tell you, we, we were a family. It was love. We, we, we uh, did everything together. Um, and it's, it's, it was just so much love. So much love growing up in the point. 
We were all we had. We were all we had. An island in its own, you know, one way in, one way out. Um, one store. I mean, and so, you know, yeah, it made us close-knit, uh, made us a family, um, and um, it was just, it was love. When we didn't have nothing, his family pitched right. in. Right. When they didn't have nothing, our family pitched in. It was just one big family in the jungle. We all got along. We had so much fun. And it was a project, but it was like a family. Everybody knew each other. Everybody got along. We had block parties. We had arts and crafts. With my friends, we used to play jump rope. We used to do bike riding together. And like I said, everybody from the point was like a family. And you wouldn't think that because living in a project, you'd think that it was going to be like terrible, horrifying, but it absolutely was not. It was like family. Everybody knew uh, everyone. When you go outside, you didn't want to. You didn't want to uh, go back in a house. And back in the days, our parents they used to call from the window, like from the fifth and seventh floor. You all get in here now. And you know, as a kid, we was outside having fun. And, and when our parents called us, we had to go inside the house. But it was really a lot of a lot of fun we had. It was all family. People's History is produced by Allison Bruzek, Rihanna Fernandez-Nunez, Connor Gillies, Rosie Gillies, Kainat Khan, and me, Alejandro Ramirez. Research help from Patrick King, Caitlin Rose, and Ed Paget. Fact-checking and editing by Laura Foner and Bill Cunningham. Thank you, Tracy Rogers, who shared her eviction story at the start of the episode. Our theme music is by Marissa Anderson, and our score is by Visitor, which is a project of Liz Harris and Ilyas Ahmed. People's History Podcast is an independent radio series. It is not related to the book A People's History of the United States or related projects. This is the end of season one, but it's not all over. We've begun our research for season two, and we'd love your help. You can support our next adventure at Patreon at People's History Pod. Also check out our website, peopleshistorypod.net. People's History is presented by Jacobin Magazine with help from the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. Thank you for listening.